The first scripture reading today comes from Jonah chapters 1 and 2. Jonah chapters 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went abroad and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What shall we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. 
yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Second reading also comes from the prophecy of Jonah. We'll read together chapters three and four. Let's continue to hear God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds, or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you realize this, but there are actually three books of Jonah, or three versions of the book of Jonah. First book of Jonah is the one that we read as children, right? It's the cartoon version of this story. Maybe your Sunday school teacher put flannel board figures up and big whales swallowing renegade prophets. Maybe you saw the Veggie Tales version of Jonah. In this first version of the book, for children, God tells Jonah to do something. Jonah does the opposite thing. God sends a whale. The whale swallows Jonah. Naturally, Jonah says, I'm sorry. The whale spits out Jonah. And this time, Jonah obeys God. And this first version is, of course, all about what? It's all about obedience. The message is, you should obey the Lord. And for most of us, this is the only Jonah that we ever read. The problem is that this version of the story ends after Jonathan stopped reading, at the end of chapter two, but there's actually four chapters in the real book of Jonah. Then version two of the book of Jonah. If you stick around a church long enough, you might hear the second version. This is missionary Jonah version two of his story. And in this version, it's not about obedience in general, but it's about obedience specifically to the, what we call the great commission that we are supposed to go into the world and make disciples. We have a tough time obeying the Lord in this. And so did Jonah. So this is the story for us. Are we going to go to our Nineveh like God told us to or not? We should go too. Now the problem with missionary Jonah, this version of the story, 
is that it's only three chapters long. And it stops after the third chapter. But once again, there are four chapters in the book of Jonah, not three. And the third version of the book of Jonah, it turns out, is the four-chapter book that we actually have in our Bibles. And it's the version of the book of Jonah that we actually need. We need it if we are going to be people engaged in God's mission. We need it if we're going to be obedient in general. Because the book of Jonah, in it, we actually, the one that we actually have in our Bibles, it goes deeper than obedience to our mission. It goes deeper than obedience in general. It goes all the way down into the motivations of our hearts. It exposes what is actually there. It messes with our sense of identity. It forces us to examine how we are looking at other people, especially people outside of this church of ours. If we read the real book of Jonah, which we did, but if we continue to read it, we will encounter, along with Jonah, the actual God that we claim to serve. Now, since we're going to study the actual book of Jonah, and we'll take the next eight weeks after this with a little pausa in the middle there, since we're going to spend eight more weeks with this, let's get to know the book a little bit. Let me give you, as an introduction, the top ten things that you probably did not know about the real book of Jonah, things that, after all, really do make it a whale of a tale. So let's start at ten and count ourselves down, shall we? What are the ten things that you maybe didn't know about Jonah but are really going to help to know? Number ten, the story of Jonah actually makes a really bad kid's story. This might be one of the top five Bible stories that you teach kids, right? If you're going to have five days of vacation Bible school, you're like, well, what story should we use? Somebody's going to nominate Jonah, right? It's easy to tell, full of action, clear point to it. But this is not a kid's story. I've read it to my kids, but it's not a children's story. Kid versions of the story usually make it safer for us to read. You take out, for example, all of those parts where Jonah yells at God, because that's a really bad example of how to follow our Lord. But even when you take those unsafe parts out, you've still got a bunch of weird stuff happening in this book. A guy, after all, right away gets thrown into a raging sea in the middle of a storm. He then gets swallowed by a sea monster. Sorry, a little violence. He gets stuck in the sea monster's belly. He is then vomited out. He then goes and he preaches to Nineveh wrath and judgment, not love and mercy. Why would you want to teach this story to, to your children? Do you like to give your children nightmares? I mean, this is a little bit weird if you think of it as a kid's story. It's not a kid's story. Number nine, it definitely could have happened in real life. Let me ask you this. If you read this and you're like, how could this be? Did this really happen? Let me ask you, what's harder? What's more difficult? For God to create the world out of absolutely nothing just by speaking? 
or for God to use a fish to save a guy? What's harder for God to raise Jesus from the dead and give him immortality or to make a storm become calm? Right? If you believe in God, then you already believe that the impossible is not impossible for our God. It doesn't make any sense to say then, come on, can we really believe that this Jonah story could have happened? It definitely could have happened. Number eight, it might be a made-up story, and that's okay. Now, some Bible-believing scholars think that Jonah reads like our history books in the Bible, that we're meant to read it like history. Other Bible-believing scholars read it, and they have indications that it reads more like a short story, something like a parable, kind of like the stories that Jesus made up and used, full of hard-hitting messages, but also often full of crazy action and utterly backward characters. I'm almost convinced that this little book in our Bibles is what you might call a comic satire, right? That it was written as a politically charged piece of subversive art, and it was meant to stun and to convict its audience, even while it makes them laugh at the same time. To make everybody that reads it say, it's funny because it's true, right? Jonah, after all, is not grouped with the historical books of the Old Testament scriptures, but rather with the prophets. And the prophetic writings are all literary art. They are poetry. And so I think it could be the case that this little book of Jonah is a literary prophetic book. Instead of being poetry, it's a piece, perhaps, of short story, of parable fiction. Now, here's the thing. As long as you believe that it could be historically true because God can do anything, then it does not make you less of a Bible believer and a real Christian if you end up thinking, maybe this story isn't history so much as parable, as art. Jesus, after all, loves and uses stories and parables. And Jesus loved this story and used it in his own day. Either way... It doesn't change the message. The message is crystal clear, whether it's history or a short story parable. So number eight, it might be made up, and that's okay. Number seven, we get into the book itself a little bit. Pagans, polytheistic people that are clueless about the real God in this book, they do most of the worship of God in this book. People that don't know their right hand from their left do more praying and sacrificing and repenting and oath-making to the one true God of Israel than the Israelite prophet Jonah does in this book. It's almost like the pagans on the ship and the pagans in Nineveh are giving Jonah and giving Israel and giving us today a crash course in how to hear God's voice, how to repent and turn from our wickedness, how to have faith 
and how to begin with that faith, to love your neighbor. The pagans do most of the worship leading. Number six, it's in our Bibles, even though it makes us look bad. And I think this is marvelous. You can't be one of God's people reading the book of Jonah in the half century before Christ and not realize that the criticism of this book is aimed directly at you. It's not a story, after all, of Israel's prophet turning from his rebellious ways and beginning to love God from his heart. That would make a happy story, an example, an encouragement. But rather, this story ends with Jonah still furious at God and with God really disappointed in the pathetic heart of his prophet Jonah. And yet, it's in the Hebrew Bible. They knew it was the word of the Lord. They knew that God had breathed this story out and was using it to teach and rebuke and correct and train them in his own justice and mercy. It's too good of a book. They recognize this to put it on the banned books list. It's too true and it's too relevant and it's too potentially transformative. And it addresses us today. And it's going to hurt. But it's going to hurt just like it did for the Hebrew people. It's going to hurt in order to heal. Number six, it's in our Bibles, even though it makes us look bad. Number five, the sailors and the Ninevites represent the world. This book shows that the world is inherently religious. Humans want to worship. This book shows that the world can be nevertheless cruel. When you're ultimately interested in worshiping power in order to get more of it, you will oppress people. The Assyrians, as we'll learn later, whose capital was Nineveh, they were the most oppressive, gruesome empire in ancient history. This book shows us that the world is also spiritually lost. The sailors don't know to which god they should turn. The Assyrians think that the gods support their oppression and cruelty. This book also shows us that the world is not so lost that it can't also be found. The sailors, after all, turn to God and make sacrifices and vows, and the Assyrians turn from their wickedness and lie in sackcloth. So number five, the sailors and the Ninevites represent the world. Number four, as you might have guessed by now, Jonah represents us. It's completely obvious that Jonah represents the most religious and you might say the most patriotic of ancient Israelites. And as those Hebrew people read this story, they would have realized it. He represents their nation. And today he also represents Christians like us. He especially <laughs> represents preachers like me. We are all meant to read this book and say, 
what a self-centered jerk this guy is. And then read it a second time and say, what a self-centered jerk I can be. And what a self-centered jerk I can sometimes be in God's name. So number four, Jonah represents us. Number three, better news, God represents, well, God in the book of Jonah. In fact, in these, my Bible, it's three pages. In these three pages of our Bible, we get one of the most stunning and varied portraits of the character of God that we get in the whole Bible. Look at what God's up to and what we read. God hates the wickedness of oppressive, powerful people. Still, God sends them a messenger, pursuing them and condemning their wickedness rather than simply condemning them. God claims his people as his own in Jonah, chases them down. Whether it takes a storm or a big fish or a crazy mission, God pursues his people. God cares about and loves cities, even cities that aren't named Jerusalem. He doesn't wish that anyone should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. God delights in creation. He even takes a special interest in this book in what? In animals. Animals are more pious and Christian in this book than the Christians are. And God appreciates that. The God of this book offers hope. When people turn from wickedness toward God, he is a God who forgives with compassion. He is compassionate. He pursues hearts. His love and his justice are here in sweet harmony in this book. It's all here. All of this character of our God is here in these three little pages, and marvelously so. God represents, number three, God. Number two, Jesus calls his own mission the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. In two different places in the Gospels, people are trying to test Jesus, right? They're like, you're just a nobody from Nazareth. Why should we follow you? They're like, why don't you give us a sign? Show us a miracle. We want to see your power so we know you're really from our God. And he says, nah, I'm not going to give you any sign except this one. I will give you the sign of Jonah, he says. And at the most basic level, the sign of Jonah, Jesus says, is this. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so also will the Son of Man, will Jesus, be three days in the heart of the earth. Whether you're from Nineveh or the Netherlands, whether you're from Israel or Indonesia, Jesus is saying through this book of Jonah, what counts is repentance of your sins and failures. Trust in him and trust in this one who came out of the belly of the earth after three days to live new life and to live it forever. Jesus gives us the sign of Jonah to point us 
to the new life that is only found in him. The sign of Jonah is the mission of Jesus, number two. And then finally, number one, number one thing that you maybe didn't know about Jonah, and that is that the sign of Jonah that we've just been speaking of is actually found everywhere in the book of Jonah. It's not just the, oh, three days in the tomb, three days in the fish, I get it, sort of a parallel here, cool. It is that, and all that that means But Jesus knows and says that he is, in fact, the real Jonah. The Jonah that Jonah could never be. And therefore, that he was the real representative of Israel that Jonah was supposed to be but could not be. And in every scene in this wonderful little book of ours called Jonah, we find Jesus saying to us, You are special. You are chosen. You are called in a unique way. But you are my people. Why? In order to join me in my mission, to bring my glory and and my grace among the nations, to bring together a new people from every nation who are made new by my grace and made one together for my glory. You are blessed, the Lord says to Jonah, and the Lord Jesus says to us in this book of his. But you're blessed to be a blessing. You're brought in to be sent out. You're meant to be a people with as big of a heart as the heart of God, full of love and justice, like the heart of Jesus. And then you are meant in the power of Jesus and by the Spirit to turn that heart toward the world so that it might overflow for their good and for God's glory. And we'll see this reality, this sign of Jonah in every twist and turn of this really weird but really wonderful story of Jonah. And we are learning, I must say, this book of Jonah at the start of a year in which we as a church are now trying to turn outward, right? We're trying to turn toward our neighbors and toward our city and toward the world afresh. We've spent a year thinking about turning upward toward God and turning inward toward one another in love. And now we move outward. And in this study of Jonah at the beginning of this movement outward, we are going to feel our attitudes and our words and our actions challenged by the real God. God will pursue us through this book and we are not always going to like it. But we will see, we will see the sign of Jonah. We will see the Lord Jesus in this book. We might even experience Jesus so freshly and so vitally by his spirit. If we do, we will never be the same. And Jesus himself might turn us into a people who are ready then to turn to the nations with grace and truth, with love and justice, with humility and with compassion. I've been saying in the newsletters and in my announcements and in all of these different ways that I'm so excited to study this book together. 
I can almost not contain my excitement. I don't mean to oversell the book of Jonah, but I am convinced that just as the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and then came to him again, so the word of the Lord is addressed to you and to me. And in this season of our life as a church, he intends to build love and compassion for our neighbor into each of our hearts and into the heart of our fellowship together for the sake of our neighbors and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so in the days ahead. Heavenly Father, take our humble study of your word, convince us of its truth and authority, change us from deep within by it. And may we hear and may we respond to your word in a way that is fitting to your loving kindness and compassion, which never fail us in Christ Jesus. We dedicate ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.